if you can't be VC with your money, how can you be VC with your time? And what I mean by that is, if you have a clear sense of what the mission is, and you're able to draw the connections for where the possibilities may be, there is a very, very small chance that this thing may work. But if it does, it will be exponential and it will be incredible. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and today's guest is nonprofit technologist, innovator, digital consultant, speaker and author, and I'm sure many other impressive titles as well, Jason Shim. All kidding aside, Jason has been part of the social sector virtually his entire life, starting with volunteering at a nursing home at a very early age. He's worked behind the scenes with some pretty incredible organizations and served on the board of N10 for more than five years. He's got a phenomenal perspective on the sector, and I've enjoyed every interaction we've had. I hope you find him as insightful and interesting to listen to as I do. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. You actually started out, you know, in in school and after school launching into the social sector. I'm curious about why, you know, what was the inspiration? How did you know that for-purpose work was for you? Some of those early experiences like that, that drove you to do that? The earliest memory that I have is... Uh, of you know the social purpose work was my seventh grade teacher. I remember that she gave a presentation or kind of like a speech to uh, our class, and she really exhorted us all to you know go and volunteer out in the community. And at the time, the notion of volunteering was you know no one had really articulated as such. Like you know go out there and help people in your community. And it's like oh okay. Um, and so, you know, what that led to was going home and, you know, cracking open a phone book and being like, oh, okay, you know, where can I volunteer? And I remember where I was living at the time, there was uh, a senior's residence um, that was nearby. And so um, I just looked them up and called them and be like, hey, do you take volunteers? And they said, you know, yes, we do, um, you know start you know, collecting information, you know, how, how old are you? Uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm in the seventh grade and, you know, there was a pause on, on the call and like, oh, um, well, we, you know, normally don't have volunteers, you know, that young necessarily, but we'll, we'll find something for you to do. And <laughs> so what that led to was, um, you know, I uh, volunteered there as a receptionist at the, the front desk. And I think that was my, uh, my early entry point into seeing how I could help out in the community and also learning about how organizations worked. And I think, you know, there, there was a lot of, you know, bigger questions that were presented to me at the time that, you know, were kind of blowing my seventh grade mind. Um, uh, one of which was, you know, working in a place where, you know, folks were, you know, older and, you know, during the time that I, I was working there also, you know, folks passing away and, you know, the, the er, you know, relatively early exposure to to that uh, as, a, as a young person. But, um, you know, I, I think that sense of satisfaction that, you know, came from being able to help people that, you know, needed help um, as well. And, you know, just the memories that, that came from that, uh, you know, one one particular memory that, that comes to mind, uh, you know, I remember one of the residents, uh, he... Uh, had a habit of 
sneaking ice cream cups to me from the the cafeteria. And, you know, I, I just found that a really, you know, kind of charming thing where, you know, he, he would, uh, you know, come by and be like, hey, got you an ice cream cup. And it's like, all right, <laughs> thank you so much. And, you know, just small little joys like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I would say that that was, you know, one of my, my earliest kind of memories and experiences with volunteering and how that propelled into the social sector was another vignette that I'll, I'll share is, you, you know, those little agenda things that you get in high school or actually yeah, I, like I, the planning I, yeah, books kind of thing. Yeah, planning books. And one of the, the prompts that I remember getting and looking at in ninth grade was what, what is your, what do you want to do with your life or what is your purpose or something? And I'm, that that it's was a, a question. question. Yeah, yeah it, it was like you, you're in ninth grade and you're looking at this question. And it's like, just reading this notebook, and all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is your purpose in life? Yeah. <laughs> Existential crises over here. Yeah, <laughs> and I, 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 I sat with it for a bit, and I, I, what, what I wrote at that time was, you know, my my dream is to help others realize their dreams, and you know, it was something that you know as a that you know seemed to resonate with me at the time but it's something that i've really carried forward and has stuck with me over the years and i've returned to it you know i, I still have that you know planner uh today and as opportunities arose and as uh you know paths emerged I, I think that's been one of the guiding principles where you know where are the opportunities to help others realize their dreams or you know help others along the way uh, as well you mentioned that you sort of got glimpses or insights into some of the operational stuff going on at the facility and, and being asked certain questions or, or just sort of witnessing kind mm-hmm. of how they operated. Can you dive into that a little bit? I'm curious, like what you were exposed to and sort of what, you know, light bulb yeah. moments that those led to. Yeah, I, I think the the first thing is, you know, when you're working at reception, you, you know, there, you have a switchboard. And so there's like multiple lines and, you know, phone calls coming in and you're routing them all over the organization. And so, you know, for someone who is you know quite young and being introduced to that like up until that time i only really had one line coming into the house and you know mm-hmm. that was fairly simple to to deal with so you know that that sense of um you know triaging uh you know the, the calls are coming in routing them and making sure that you know the the experience that people have like when you pick up the phone and remember during the training they provided a guide at the time where it talked about you know, be aware of how you're modulating your voice, if it's, you know, fast or slow, or if, you know, um, and how that can convey a message to whoever's on the other line. Um, one of the other tasks that was assigned to me is I remember receiving a huge stack of documents, and it was uh, a nutrition guide. And it was this massive, massive guide that needed to be um, typed up fast forward to where we are that's an ocr you know type thing that you know someone could just scan it and be done with it but back then you know i had to like manually type everything and as i was typing in this you know 100 page plus document that i was also learning about the details that are needed to ensure that there was good nutrition provided for each each of the nutritional needs that the residents had and you know as i got to know the uh the organization having an appreciation for the size and scope and operations where he's like there's a hundred page guide solely dedicated set solely dedicated to nutrition there's a separate uh, document that's solely dedicated to the safety and security of the residents that you know there are you know uh, nursing stations that i also need to coordinate with you know being at the reception uh, side of things and you know escorting the residents to various sections that may have you know security uh, considerations once again you know at, at that age you know i i 
I, I kind of look back at it now and I'm like, oh, wow, that, that was a, a really fun exposure to all of that at um, there. But I getting a sense of, you know, how everything kind of interconnects and how everything kind of flows into one another and being able to identify my role in it and where I could help out uh, along the way as well. I feel like it's going to be just a common theme, but, you know, the, the first story you relayed was when you're in seventh grade, this thing your teacher told you, you know, which is like in their curriculum and in, in that person's career, I'm sure it seemed like an insignificant thing, but it just had this lasting and important impact on on your life. So that, I wonder how many more moments there are like that throughout years and all of our careers. Yeah, well, so, so many, especially when working with young people that, you know, I, I think that's one of the the things that I've really taken forward with me as I've, you know, gotten older that, you know, we, I think that, you know, there's so many interactions that we have over the course of a day, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, thousands, you know, depending, you know, we may be sending an email, an instant message, but the power that it has to a young person, you know, and being very intentional and careful with, with those interactions, because, you know, yes, it may be, you know, five or 10 minutes, you know, on, on our end, but it could be, you know, something that may be remembered for a lifetime uh, that, you know, folks can, can carry forward. And, and, and so, you know, be, I think being conscious and building those experiences and not just for youth though, but, you know, th those, those kinds of moments, you know, exist, you know, everywhere. Um, it's just that, you know, I, I do think it, it can be a little bit more pronounced for, for young people. <laughs> I love travel. Uh, I have, I think a bias towards international work. I'm very curious about your experience as a youth ambassador in Ghana. That was a, an opportunity that uh, that arose uh, to to spend some time in Ghana to work with a, a project team, and it was to develop um, some uh, curriculum around uh, uh, building you know, small businesses and uh, entrepreneurship, and uh, speaking with students about you know what the the process is like. And so, uh, you know, really, it was a combination of just making uh, sure that folks were aware of you know there are certain you know. Um, mechanical processes that are, are needed in terms of, you know, filing paperwork that is, is related to, you know, entrepreneurship and, and uh, employability, you know, uh, type things. Um, but uh, during our time there, I, I think I, we also learned about, you know, many of the different, um, you know, types of businesses that students pursued there. So one of the areas that we worked in, it was out of a vocational school. And, you know, the, the skills that the students were, were learning there were, you know, around uh, cooking and catering and, you know, uh, sewing and such and really uh, learning more about, you know, how, uh, how those skills, you know, translated into the broader workforce, you know, within uh, Ghana uh, as well. And I, I met some really uh, great people when, uh, when I was there. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things over the years is, you know, keeping in touch with the folks that, you know, had, you know, our shared interest in working with youth in an international context and, and, you know, where that's, you know, taken all of us, you know, respectively. And, you know, I think all of us, you know, went on to stay in the kind of the social impact sector as well. What were you surprised at? Some of the differences that you, that you saw and some of the, the ways of operating that you felt like, you know, were, were in common across wildly different organizations. One thing that I observed that was definitely shared is that sense of wonder that that young people have. I mean, that's, that's a pretty you know universal you know thing, and that you know a genuine curiosity to to learn more. And mm. you know, I, I I think also the reinforcement that it's 
there's a very strong you know connection between education and, and relationships in that you know I, I i generally don't think that one can exist without the other that you know if if it was solely about you know the education you know that you know and not the relationship then you can just you know deliver it all via you know textbooks and you know on videos or, or something but you know th there's something to be said I, I think for you know taking an active interest in you know folks lives and getting to know people uh, a little bit um in you know facilitating those, those kind of educational uh, experiences um to, to the point of where where the differences were I, I think you know one of the things that you know has driven me to the work of you know doing uh, education in, in multiple contexts like working with youth you know, all throughout my, my career for university jobs and, and and you know after graduation and and so on and so forth is the access to resources so you know when, when working in, in in ghana you know that you know the uh, it, it was very you know evident that there is uh, a very different you know access to level of resources in terms of um access to even education where, you know, I, I think that, you know, in, in the North American context, uh, at least for, you know, uh, public schools, that it isn't something that people consciously may think about in terms of, you know, the cost of schooling. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when, when we were there, you know, the, um, being very aware that, you know, there, there are tuition costs for, you know, the, 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 the at least the schools that we were working with, uh, there at the, the uh, secondary level. And so, you know, the, that that was just something that you know pre presented itself as being like oh you know this is a very different context in which people are you know if if you're going if you're paying for school then there's also you know an expectation that you know the skills that you learn there are also going to be useful that you know to um, you know generate an income as well um, you know which is a reasonable expectation in that in, in that context because you know this is about you know making sure that one is prepared to provide you know in, in in the future for their their family what were some of the projects you remember from that program i'm sure there were some interesting ones yeah the the, the main one was the, the the youth employability um uh project that that was the primary one that uh, that we worked on while we were there what is that program and what were you looking to achieve with it that one was with an organization called uh, youth challenge international and uh it was um the the program was uh, a way to um, engage with, uh, you know, students in the local area and, um, really to talk about like, how, how would you go about, you know, starting, starting your own business and what is the process like for applying for jobs and helping folks, you know, through that process and better understanding how to do that. You decided to create your own independent consultancy. What led to that decision and what's sort of your unique take on the sector that drives the work that you do as a consultant? Along the way, there was an opportunity to uh, help out folks in a broader way. And what really drew me to it was that there was the opportunity to, to explore projects that started with a general problem. And there wasn't like a set defined way of, of doing it. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's like lots of creative explorations that can be done. And so I think that's what I found really quite appealing about doing some of the consulting work uh, along the way. And, you know, what I observe about doing it is that, you know, I think when when presented with the right kind of context and uh, realizing what the potential can be for a project and say, you know, I, I haven't done work that's been, you know, solely in in the uh, the nonprofit space as well. And, you know, I, I think that some of the, uh, the clients I've taken on have, you know, been in the, uh, you know, for-profit space, uh, albeit, you know, I, I think 
um, you know, some in the uh, the counseling area of things. Uh, so, you know, build helping with digital solutions in, in, in that side. And what I've found really uh, rewarding over the years is that, you know, for someone who is trying to get their uh, their practice, you know, established and, you know, trying to grow and, you know, helping them, you know, realize that, you know, what their website can, can do for them. It's like, hey, you, you know, yes, you can share all the information and everything, but, you know, you can make this a, a lot easier for folks to, you know, process payments, you know, online and mm-hmm. it will be, you know, a much smoother experience that, you know, instead of folks having to call in necessarily that, you know, they can just you know, do it all online and it's streamlined and you don't have to worry about this stuff. And, and so I think I've been able to weave some of those experiences over into, you know, the social impact space as well. And, you know, cross pollinating between um, uh, organizations, between sectors and uh, really figuring out, you know, some of how, how do you merge some of the um, new, new and emerging technologies that are coming out with the problems that are, um, you know, presenting themselves. When is the right time for organizations to invest in their website and, and technologies? How do you begin that conversation? I think right from the outset. Like it, it's hard to really think of a business that is starting today that doesn't have a website. And, but I, I think that where the conversation typically goes is, you know, what, what is it that you're trying to achieve? You know, that, that's usually what I, I start with. And, you know, depending on what people respond with, like, you know, I'll, I'll help them develop a plan accordingly. So if, if someone is really, you know, planning on building, you know, a, a growth oriented business, then it's like, okay, definitely, you know, that is going to be near, you know, uh, impossible to do, you know, without a website. But if someone is, you know, looking to, you know, have essentially like an online business card, then it's like, okay, you know, we can keep it simple in terms of people just need to have an online presence where they can find you and contact you. Um, if it's, you know, a one person operation versus like, if you're looking to grow and scale and you have like a place of physical operations, people need to be able to look you up easily. Yeah. And so that question of like, what is it that you want to achieve? I think looking at that time horizon of, you know, what do you want to do in the immediate time horizon, but also like, where do you see yourself going in, you know, do you see yourself you know growing? If so, then building a strategy to grow the online presence and the strategies around that as well. And also I, I like to think that one thing I try to offer folks is not just thinking purely about the technical part that I also you know, talked to them about, you know, you're going to have to think about your resourcing and staffing as you move forward that, you know, mm. as you know, you may need someone to update the website for you. Ideally, you know, if you can resource that internally, it may be someone part of someone's role that as you're looking to fulfill, you know, let's say if someone hires a bookkeeper or something or an administrative, you know, staff member, that that's an opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. for multiple functions for that person to take on if it fits uh, to also take on some of those tasks. What are the top considerations you think, you know, that that organizations need to think about when launching into that program? Yeah, I, I would break it down into a few sections. So I, first, I, I think, you know, starting with, you know, the the overall like mission for the organization or, or, or business. And it's like, okay, start with that so that you have your North Star from which everything else is derived you know, mm-hmm. from that. And then mapping out, you know, some of the the the, the journey that, you know, um, a customer or a donor, you know, may, may, may take and what does that look like? So at a very high level, you know, in a perfect world, what does what does it look like? What does it feel like? And and then I think from there, that's where you start, you know, with the, the solutioning, you know, part of things. And, you know, I, I think uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the website is one component. Uh, you know, email uh, is definitely another for email marketing, you know, mm. uh, social media. Um, 
customer support, uh, if that is you know, relevant to the, the, the particular you know, organization as well, and how you are going to tie all those things together because they don't stand alone either. And the data that you are receiving from you know, all these various touch points can inform overall strategy for uh, an organization uh, as well. So you know, I, I think that there are constantly like new tools that are coming out all the time. And, you know, one thing that I've observed is that, you know, lately there's, uh, there's certainly been more uh, video focused tools that help, you know, record video messages to engage with folks mm-hmm. uh, as well. But I, I think the important thing to keep in mind is as these tools keep on emerging, that you're still always looking at the North Star. So, you know, I, I think when uh, I'll take a specific example, when you're considering um, you know, how you're reaching out to folks that, you know, once upon a time, it was primarily done via the phone. And if you're constantly leaving phone messages, uh, you know, mm. for folks, that's certainly a prompt for, you know, how, how effective is your current outreach? And, you know, is email more effective or should, you know, video might actually be a more engaging way because if you can leave a message anyway, it might as well be a video message that you're sending via email to establish that personal sure. connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So making sure, I, I think, uh, that, uh, the, the problems are are clear and staying focused on those because I, I think that a very real um, trap can be getting obsessed with the tools themselves and knowing when to let go and transition for some of those uh, parts as well. What sort of pitfalls have you seen? How should they think about implementation and ongoing support? I don't know how, how many listeners may necessarily be fans of The Office, but you, you know that scene... <laughs> One of the sales folks, it might have been Jim, was making a pitch to a prospective client and they called their competitor and they were put on hold. And then they simultaneously called Dunder Mifflin. Oh, and, yeah. You know, yeah, of Kelly course. picked up and he's like, hey, Kelly, what's up? And it was fed back to the person that they were uh, presenting to. It's like, and that's the kind of service that you're going to get. Yep, yep, yep. I do remember that scene. That was a good one. Yeah. Good one. And, and so when, when thinking about support, I, I, I think that that's an important component of Sometimes, you know, yes, you can also, you know, ask, you know, what the support levels are like, and, you know, you're, you're going to get like, you know, we are going to respond to you accordingly. But some of it is this, you just put in a support ticket and, you know, you'll see firsthand or try calling in to see, um, you know, what the support will be like if you're picking up a, a new vendor or, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think making sure that your folks are checking the box for, you know, that an organization will supply training ongoing support, is it going to be additional paid support or is it bundled in with, you know, the packages that, that folks are using? Um, but e- once again, even with, you know, even when it's outlined, testing it out yourself and and really making sure that it is at the level that's um, needed. Because I, I think that some of the, the best experiences I've had with various vendors have been when the support is quick and responsive and mm-hmm. it makes it a pleasure, you know, not only to implement, but also, you know, if you're picking up uh, a, a tool for an entire team uh, that that support is uh, available there so that, you know, it's, uh, you're not constantly having to feel that internally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, I think that's right on, you know, on, on the vendor side, I think my mind naturally goes to internal support as well, though. Like you, you can't have a chat bot if nobody's monitoring it, you know, you exactly. shouldn't have email support if nobody's responding to those emails. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, the, having those, um, metrics as well that you know you have to be careful with you know the kind of metrics that you use because you know sure. there's always ways to you know game them as a rough you know metric it's you know if someone sends in an email um you know how long is you know does it take to turn around and resolve the the issue and 
you know, I, it, it's not to be punitive about the numbers. It's truly, you know, making sure that you know why those numbers are there. So it's like, you know, if, if it takes, you know, five days to get a, a response, um, mm -hmm. you know, that may be something to kind of keep an eye out on, you know, for your organization, because chances are that's not a great client experience. You said nonprofits don't live in a venture capital environment. And if you can't be a venture capitalist with your money, you should be a venture capitalist with your time and how you invest your time. Uh, can you talk a bit about, about that insight and, and, and how organizations can think in terms of investing wisely uh, in their own future and operations and culture? Yeah, I, I think when, when we were talking about the, that, uh, that example, that you know, the, the proposition for venture capital is that you, know, you can spread it across you know, a whole bunch of organizations, like you know, 100 organizations, and it only really takes one to have the outsized return, and it makes it all worth it from you know, a, a, an investment perspective. Mm. And when I think about the dynamics that are sometimes presented you know, in the nonprofit sector that, you know, certainly, you know, there isn't necessarily the same um, type of, you know, resourcing that's available to for, you know, for, for a nonprofit to, you know, take the, the VC approach. Um, but to, to that point, it's, you know, how, if you can't be VC with your money, how can you be VC with your time? And what I mean by that is, what are some of those strategic bets that one can take, you know, that could be, you know, taking the time to sit down with an emerging, it could be a startup, it could be another organization, it could be an interesting partnership, it could be like a single individual who is, you know, still in school and figuring things out. If you have a clear sense of what the mission is, and you're able to draw the connections for where the possibilities may be, and being able to perhaps uh, have some uh, forecasting around like, you know, there is a very, very small chance that this thing may work, but if it does, it will be exponential and it will be incredible. My personal leaning, you know, generally is gravitates towards technology because, you know, that's where I've spent most of my career. Um, but when I think about, you know, how can you be a VC with your time? It's like, okay, we may not have, you know, the resourcing to invest in, you know, in something like, you know, in, in AI, you know, startup or, or something like that. But there are other avenues to invest time, whether it be learning or talking to folks about, you know, hey, you know, if there was something that, you know, could help you, um, uh, in, in an AI tool that helps you generate text for, say, like, you know, grant applications or something that in an early stage that you, like, it could help you, you know, reduce your workload by, you know, um, tenfold uh, mm -hmm. or something. And, and so, you know, when when thinking about how you can do that with your time it's you know sometimes you know that's that's the most valuable thing that we we can provide uh, in, in some of these conversations is just taking taking the time to to learn and um think about you know some of these possibilities can you elaborate on on that a bit further in terms of how organizations should be thinking about expected value about risk reward and how can they make it okay to take risks and make educated guesses in an environment with incomplete information? I think when looking at taking risks, I think you need to start on the other side first. And by the other side, I mean, what does it look like to stay status quo? And so, you know, there is an equation that I like to share with folks um, when considering the value of you know, innovation and, you know, taking risks and incremental gains where, you know, one to the power of 365 is one. So, you know, really what that means is if you don't make any improvements or you stay exactly the same over the course of a year, you're going to get one at the end of that. Yeah. But if you can make a 1% uh, 
incremental gain every day, that's 1.01 to the power of 365. And that comes out to, you know, 37, uh, almost 38 X, you know, yeah. a, a multiplier. And so what I like to frame it in is that not taking risks is staying status quo. And um, that in itself is a risk, albeit a more invisible one mm -hmm. that, you know, you're, you're going to get there no matter what, if you just stay, stay static. Yep. Another kind of parallel that I draw is, you know, if, if folks are familiar with playing poker, you know, it's the notion of bet sizing and mm -hmm. it's not about taking massive risks every time. Like, you know, certainly that may be an avenue that some you know, organizations may choose to pursue, but being able to assess, you know, what, what is a worthwhile risk, um, you know, to take that, you know, if you do this thing, you know, that the potential return can be, you know, whatever multiplier on what you're putting into it. But I, I think it's challenging in terms of, you know, having the language to talk about taking risks because it, it's uneasy to situate risk in the context of nonprofit or, you mm -hmm. know, or, or social impact work, because naturally when you're talking about, you know, helping the world and helping those around you, like, you know, if, if I go back to what I shared earlier, you know, if my dream is to help other people achieve their dreams and, you know, if I frame it and it's like, I'm going to take a risk. And if this risk doesn't pan out, you know, one way of looking at it is that's going to be fewer people that I can help achieve their dreams. But I think looking at it from other framing can be, you know, if this works, that it means even more people can, you know, can be helped um, and, you know, so on and, and so forth. So when, when looking at, at some of those, you know, risk considerations, it's, I think it's navigating, you know, some of the, sometimes there's a, it feels super comfortable to stay where, where you are. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there can be some really valuable and interesting opportunities if we, as I'm as I'm speaking out loud, you know, I'm thinking sometimes maybe it's the language that we use uh, as well around um, sure risk, um, where you know it, it it could be substituted with opportunity, and you know that may be a little bit more palatable for for folks um, you know to take. But I think one last point that I'll touch upon is if there were no risk to anything then everyone would be doing it. That's one thing that I, I, I like to try and you know, put out for folks. It's like if there was absolutely no risk in pursuing a course of action and there was mm -hmm. you know, a definite benefit, then logically everyone would be doing that thing. But for whatever reason, people aren't. If there's a guaranteed return on the thing, that will unfold itself. And so that's where we can pour some, you know, our creativity and innovation to put ourselves out there. But how do you weigh out that for an organization um, on the day to day? You know, I, I like to bring it down to something smaller, uh, going back to that 1% where it's like, it doesn't have to be a, a huge risk. It can be like, mm -hmm. what's even something that can improve your, your life or your day by, by 1%. And, you know, people can start thinking in, in, in some of those terms uh, as well. What advice can you give to organizations who want to do those things, but aren't, aren't quite sure where to start? Especially when it comes to building a culture of innovation, a culture of uh, making some strategic bets uh, with their own staff, but also, you know, how do you navigate the board and the, the donors and, and folks like that, other stakeholders? Starting with the people that you have around you. Um, I, I think that often when folks are talking about, you know, risk and innovation, that it's really centered on, you know, those things and achieving those things. But I, I like to bring it back home to, you know, the people that you're working with that, um, you know, th this may not be the, the answer that, you know, folks may expect <laughs> necessarily, but it, um, how do you build that um, 
the environment that is conducive to having these conversations or to, you know, to taking those risks. So it's really looking at, you know, do you have that firm foundation to support any future work that's being done? Because if you're trying to pursue, you know, the, the, an innovation agenda or, you know, something bigger without having really um, developed, you know, the, the internal trust that's needed to pursue it, then, you know, really it's, it's going to be a lot more difficult to do all those things. So, you know, I think some of the the initial questions I would start with is, you know, how how strong is your your current staff team, and how how will you go about you know strengthening it you know, further and building mm-hmm. you know uh, trust. Um, so, I, I think there's a lot of like people element um, to it, and you know, to to our earlier point around um, you know support and internal support. Uh, I see that as being really important to make sure that that is present, you know, before any of these considerations start where, you know, it's not just about, you know, pitching this grand idea. It's like, okay, we're going to like, you know, innovate for the next, you know, however many years and do, do the thing. It's, you know, as we are pursuing that, how are we going to support people internally to, to get there uh, as well? Because, you know, it's, you want to be able to take the organization with you and you know that involves you know yes you know charting the vision setting the vision and all that but also making sure that people are feeling supported along the way for you know wherever they're at along the spectrum for you know contributing to an innovation uh, agenda so in in terms of selling it like you know the i think one of the kind of magical things about you know working in the innovation space is you know one of the uh, perhaps the litmus test uh, is you know when when you can stop talking about innovation um, within an organization um, that that may potentially be a signal that you may have achieved it that it, it just becomes part of your your day to day and similar to you know I think thoughts about digital that you know I, I think sometimes when folks talk about like you know digital marketing or digital whichever it's like you know I I think there will be a future in, in in which you know we're already kind of there where marketing itself is uh, you can't separate it from considerations of digital, mm-hmm. and so when you're thinking about the, the work itself, like right now, I think we situate you know doing innovation or you know risk taking that you know how when you consider how do you build that into the culture of your organization itself, and it's like you know it's not this unique and distinct activity. It's just how we do things mm-hmm. uh, naturally in terms of, you know, finding better, you know, outcomes and solutions and, and, and such. So, yeah, I, I think that those are some of the, uh, at least initial considerations, uh, even before, you know, talking about the, uh, you know, the, the bigger picture um, vision setting uh, type things. That I, I think yeah. as, as part of the vision setting, it's also thinking about the, um, you know, the on the ground, you know, foundation setting uh, so that the vision can have something robust to stand on. You know, to, to use your like 1.1 example, right? You just do something small and incremental that's new and different that potentially there's some risk around or whatever. Um, but to measure the results of that and, and celebrate the wins, but also celebrate the losses in the sense of like uncovering more data and learning for the organization. I think that does come a point too sometimes when like, you know, impact measurement is important and I, I fully you know recognize that. But that that really tugs at the, the concept of you know, disruptive innovation. That by its very nature, it's there may not be a clear ROI on that thing. And, and so I think sometimes when you know if we're talking about some of the things that 
are would be classified as, as disruptive innovation. It's the natural challenges that present with an organization trying to simultaneously incubate some of those ideas. And organizations are set up to optimize, you know, the the use of resources. And so if it was a, an obvious and natural use of resources um, that, you know, those actions would be taken. But, you know, I think the the pattern that you see with disruptive innovations is that they present as being like, you know, uh, not an immediate, obvious kind of return on that investment. So, uh, you know, how how do you contend with some of those ideas that may be a little bit out there, but are still uh, have a, you know, a longer time horizon or may, may take a little bit more? It goes back to the risk. We sort of mentioned attachment uh, earlier, you know, in the conversation. How do we talk about getting rid of some of the dogma and, and focusing on commitment to a cause versus attachment to the way certain things may look? I think with any organization, there is going to be a natural um, autoimmune response uh, for for things, you know, depending on what it is. And I, I think that's why it's really important to understand how some of those dynamics may may work. So, you know, for example, in in any given uh, group or any organization, if you you know parachute in and start introducing and thrashing around, you know, with a, a new idea and mm-hmm you know, you haven't necessarily, you know, gotten the buy-in from from folks like, you know, chances are you're going to trigger, you know, a, a response that is like, you know, who, who is this person? Like, you know, what, what, what are you doing? Like, do, do you understand the context of what you're doing? And, you know, I think that organizations sometimes can, you know, are naturally built that way, you know, because, you know, it's really, you know, for how, how do you build something to the benefit of, the, you know, the to advance a cause and, you know, all the existing uh, ideas and structures are, you know, um, aligned, um, or we can assume that they're aligned. And so, you know, if you are introducing an idea, you know, it it, it goes to follow that, you know, making sure that there's a clear connection to the, the core mission, but also, you know, the people that are needed to also, you know, get their buy-in for that idea. There's also that sense of attachment. And in, in doing this kind of work, I think it's really important to have a non-attachment to the idea itself. And, you know, you, you have to kind of fall in love with problems. The problems will always present and be there. And the solution set is always going to change. This may draw a thread from what we mentioned earlier about when thinking about reaching out to folks that, you know, the, the communications channel may change over time, whether it's, you know, emails or videos or calls, or maybe in the future, it's going to be like, you know, metaverse, you know, type, you know, engagements, uh, mm. depending on where things go. But, you know, I, I think when navigating uh, systems and, you know, trying to make change within, um, you know, organizations, uh, especially in the innovation space, it can be challenging within existing organizations. And I, I think when thinking about the value of, you know, when I think about the current climate for, um, uh, you know, these small startups that are emerging with, you know, really interesting technology and how fast, you know, things are, are moving, that, you know, in, in some contexts, you know, I, I think organizations need to also reflect upon if there may be opportunity to, you know, create structures internally to allow the incubation of uh, these ideas uh in a protected space to to fully explore them to the extent that they they may need to be so it's almost like the notion of a petri dish or, or something that <laughs> you, know, you, you put, put an idea in there and you kind of see see what happens you know and i, I say this jokingly where you know you're putting in a petri dish but i mean you know isn't that what the term you know pilot is often you know referring to that mm-hmm. a pilot is something that you know you very clearly are, are 
you know, outlining that you know we're gonna we're gonna try this thing out. If it doesn't work, then you know we'll fold it and you know we'll take our learnings from it. But it's a safe, defined space. That's an area that organizations can play with too. Is like what are lines we're not gonna cross? What's protected space, and how can we innovate within that and grow within that? Mm-hmm. And what what are the spaces that we think are there or the barriers that we think are there that we can challenge as well that, you know, I think you're constantly maybe questioning some of those underlying assumptions that we may have about where the boundaries may be in terms of, you know, what can be you know explored or what can be done. Looking at the sector, what are some of these base assumptions in general organizations have embraced that you feel are, are ripe for challenging? When looking at some of the traditional structures within nonprofits that, you know, if, if you were to ask someone like, you know, if I'm creating an organization, you know, what, what are the staffing structures that are, are needed? You know, you, you may get, you know, a, a response where you, you need, you know, this, this staff member, this staff member, this, you know, function. But I think, you know, really taking that back down to, we literally can create a role for anything or what, what needs to be done. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I would, uh, you know, challenge is that currently, you know, there's not necessarily a given that a nonprofit organization is going to have, say, a software developer as, you know, mm-hmm. as an early staff member. Sure. And I, I know that the, the reflexive, you know, response is going to be around the, you know, resourcing and you know, how, do you, how do you, you know, make, you know, make that, that happen as well. But I, I think even just sitting with that question a little bit that if it may potentially fit the need for the type of organization that you may have, that may be a role, um, that is something that would be helpful um, moving forward, depending on the type of organization you're looking to grow or the, the mission you're looking to advance. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I know that there's a number of organizations that have um, you know, employed um, uh, software developers and some, you know, they don't have to be necessarily a, a super large one, but, you know, in a very strategic kind of manner. So I, I think that's that's one of the things I would identify, um, you know, along the, the kind of uh, tech um, uh, side of things. Um I'm trying to think of like other underlying assumptions. Uh... Well, another way to, I think another way to frame the question though, too, is, you know, looking at the sector and how organizations seem to be operating today, you know, what do you think are the biggest opportunities uh, for, for growth and opportunities for how the sector can evolve? Another big question. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I, I, I think one of the biggest opportunities now is definitely, um, stepping up on the digital side of things like, across the board. Uh, you know, I, I think that there is so, some of what's, you know, driven my work over the years is I think the recognition that digital is, you know, one of the biggest um, levers that that organizations can use. And so, you know, I think one of the opportunities is really making sure that an organization is positioned to level up on on the digital front so building like internal capacities around you know digital and not only that but building internal capacity but also in turn building the capacity to build the things that are needed so i i think that as we talk about explorations of you know future like automation and, and, and things like that that the more that organizations are familiar with you know the uh, the principles of digital and you know as as a sector as a whole then in turn, we can be more involved in some of those broader conversations around, um, you know, how we can do so ethically and how can we do so in a way that serves, you know, the the, the public interest or the greater good. Because I, I think that, you know, there may be a perception that it's like, okay, well, you know, if we're not 
you know, in the uh, solely in the software development industry or, you know, pushing ahead these things. But it's like, yeah, there, there still is a role to play in that, you know, the making sure that, you know, people are centered and that people are being served by the, the technology. And, and, uh, and I think that's the, the, the conversation that nonprofits can really bring into that, that, uh, that space moving forward. One of the things that came up with one of my clients recently, actually, there was a real concern that shifting from a purely human touch, they have been doing a lot of stuff through text message and, and direct one-on-ones would dilute the programs, would remove the personal connection. When I think, you know, done well, it, it actually can be quite the opposite. How, how have you sort of seen that in your work? And, and, you know, how would you recommend organizations think about that and navigate deploying some of these technologies in a way that preserves or amplifies the human connection rather than diluting it? When thinking about some of these considerations for diluting human touch, I, I often look out for nostalgia of, of things because I, I think that that can be a way to, to, get, to get a sense of, you know, is it moving in a direction that is going to be better or not? Let me elaborate on that. So when we think about newspapers that, you know, I think that there was a period in which, you know, folks, um, you know, uh, can be nostalgic about newspapers. And, you know, that there's a tactile element that you can, you know, flip the page and everything. That being said, I think that, you know, generally speaking, the availability of being able to to read a newspaper online um, is significant because you can reach so many more people that it's, you know, um, uh, you you can get the news, you know, anywhere on your phone, on your device. And Mm -hmm. so that we can still think about the physical newspaper, you know, quite nostalgically, but, you know, from a operational standpoint, like, you know, the act of physically delivering a newspaper to your door versus, you know, delivery mm-hmm. via, you know, online. So starting with that and then moving to, you know, the, these ideas of, you know, are we being nostalgic about these interactions for a world that no longer exists? Because I, I think that there are certain physical elements that, you know, we're relevant in a, a certain age where, like, you know, yes, uh, you know, it, it may have been nice to get that, you know, um, that physical piece of mail. Uh, and, you know, don't get me wrong, like, I, I still think that there's a very powerful role to play in, you know, direct mail, and it's super important. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think it's also listening to, you know, what, um, folks are saying and, and responding to and that, you know, I'm not saying it's an either or, it's don't mistake, you know, the uh, embrace of the future for completely abandoning the past. Like, I, I like to think in terms of like, you know, there is a role to play for a little bit of everything that I'm not saying, you know, that you, know, you have to do away with the fiscal mail because you start an email, you know, campaign that, you know, for omnichannel marketing, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's important. But I, I think that when we're thinking about, you know, moving ahead and where some of these, um, you know, opportunities may be is that people are picking up new platforms, you know, folks have to respond accordingly and be present there. And if you are an organization that is focused on serving people where they are in the communities where they occupy. I think that we need to be real about where are these communities that people may occupy or where they spend their time. Because, you know, when we quantify the amount of time that people may have spent reading the newspaper or watching TV, you know, 15, 20 years ago versus how do people spend their eyeball time now and looking at stuff, 
it may be, you know, online communities, it may be in on social media, it may be in, you know, WhatsApp groups, you know, whichever. And I, I think the real challenge is how do organizations adapt to that? Uh, and, you know, I, I think some are, um, you know, broadly, but it's, it's not, it's not a static consideration. It's uh, one that I would, uh, just like you have dynamic lists for marketing, where it's like, you know, if people fulfill, you know, certain conditions, mm-hmm. then, you know, you insert them. I think there's something to be said for dynamic processes in that, you know, if I were to describe like, you know, the actions that organization takes, it's, you know, insert, you know, current platform that is being uh, consuming more than, you know, 15% of, you know, someone's time, you know, if the statistically that is being presented, then consider, you know, carving out time in an organization to explore a strategy to, um, pursue that if it fits the audiences you're trying to to serve or the mission you're trying to address. Several books that I've read, you know, through Audible, uh, that I've then gone out and bought the hard copy for reference uh, and used as a platform of discussion with other people. Yeah, and I think that's some of the great opportunities that are emerging for uh, for, for uh, organizations as well. That you know, organizational podcasts uh, and you know, have, you know, developing those and you know, just I think it's it's being where people are. And, you know, I, I think that one, one thing that's caught my interest uh, lately is, um, you know, things like esports and, and gaming mm. that, you know, that has been something that, um, you know, when, when I, when I think about the transition of something like esports that, you know, that term started being more widely used in the, the mid 2010s ish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as it's grown, like, you know, entire ecosystems going around it that also touch upon, you know, the, the charitable, you know, space, you know, with regards to, you know, fundraising, but also engagement, yeah. but it's a very distinct culture and convention that, you know, the esports and streamers have uh, as well. It is an active community in the social sector in many ways. And it's an opportunity, I think, for organizations to engage new audiences when, uh, you know, they may not previously have thought about yeah, and one thing that I've observed too is that even in the context of youth work and youth service delivery, that you know some of the activities, uh, you know, especially in light of COVID, uh, is that when we're all remote, you know, being able to offer opportunities where you know giving that uh, space to like, hey, you know, drop in for a gaming session online, and mm-hmm. you know you're you're just you know hanging out and, and and playing, but it provides that space to have conversations about you know life and you know. They, mm-hmm. oh, all things that are important when engaging with youth and, you know, it's really just trying to find those opportunities. If you'd gone in a completely different direction with your career, what, what might you have done? What's the, what's the path not taken for you? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that I think I was interested in uh, before uh, jumping into the social sector. Uh, Once upon a time, you know, I was interested in biomedical engineering. Once upon a time, you know, I thought that it might be a career uh, as a musician, you know, playing the French horn. Um, Mm. I, I think that in in a parallel universe that you know I'd be an inventor. Um, you know, it, it's not really a a defined you know role necessarily. You know, today is you know, but yeah, so something that involves involves creation or, or building things. Um, maybe an artist um, mm. tinkering with you know the things. Um, you know, I, I think about my my grandfather's uh, workbench. Uh, you know, the, that was the image that actually came to mind when you, you posed that question where, mm. you know, that I spent a lot of time growing up in that that context um, where there was just a lot of tools, you know, around and um, things, you know, to tinker with and build. And so, you know, so, something that involves, you know, 
doing that. What do you think the most important cause humanity could be tackling right now is and why? I think about where the numbers are kind of presenting and, you know, just where things are going that, you know, I, from an existential standpoint, that that is definitely one of the, the important things uh, that is on the radar for me. And I think when reflecting on, you know, the work that is needed to do it, I, I think that there's not necessarily a straight line to address that because in order to address something as big as, you know, a, a global issue like climate change, mm. it does necessitate, you know, a collective approach across different issue areas. So I, I, I don't see, you know, the, the issue of say like, you know, education and climate change as being separate or poverty alleviation and climate change being separate. It's, you know, where I see it is, you know, in order to, have you know future generations of scientists you know to address you know some of that you know you also need to address you know education uh, and access to education um, in order to get people to take collective action if we don't address you know fundamental you know inequities then it's going to be hard to make the case for people to care about you know the bigger global issues if mm. you know they are staring down you know you know uh, abject poverty and, and living in uh, conditions where they're experiencing, you know, um, huge inequity. So, um, but to, to I, I think that climate change is one of the biggest challenges, you know, f to be tackled for a, a generation. Um, mm -hmm. well, one that's quite important. What would you like to look back on having accomplished? Are, are there one or two things that, you know, milestones or achievements that you want to look back and feel good about having achieved? I try not to have too much attachment to these things because mm -hmm. I, I think at the end of the day, I don't believe that we are necessarily um, like we, we, we do as much as we can to control the variables that are in front of us on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think, you know, when I reflect upon looking back on a career, um, it's not the milestones that immediately come to mind. Um, it's more the how. Uh, mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, my wish is that I can look back on a career and, you know, hope that I have made some impact on people's lives, you know, through how I've worked with them or the relationships that have been built or that, you know, the ability to inspire others or achieve their dreams. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, there are some, you know, from, from a milestone perspective of having achieved like, you know, the specific X or having, you know, brought, you know, you know, achieved you know a bigger structure i think i think those things will follow um but my my hope is at the end of the career that i can look back on it and that you know hopefully that people had a good time working with me and that they they enjoyed it along the way and you know we had some fun conversations and maybe we we shared a, a nice meal together or a coffee and i because i think that those are the memories that people or that i will ultimately remember at the end of a career that it's you know, yes, you know, I think I'll be proud of some of the things that have been accomplished, but mm. the memories that will stick out for me were, will be, you know, those moments of human connection that were particularly uh, meaningful. Looking ahead, you know, what are you, what are you most excited about for, for your career and the sector and how can people get in touch? I'm excited about the future in general, in terms of like just all the developments that are emerging and how quickly they are developing. So, you know, I, I think certainly, you know, they need to be done in a, uh, in a safe and way, you know, to ensure that, you know, for the good of humanity, but you know, when you think about 
for the point of history that we're in, you know, right now, it's certainly been a tumultuous, you know, a couple of years and looking into the future, you know, there, it won't be without its challenges. But I think what I'm excited about is, you know, there will be things that my daughter will get to experience that, you know, I can barely even comprehend uh, at this point. And we're going to be moving into a future that I hope will be closer to a magical realm. And so, so like, you know, in terms of what I'm excited about, it's being able to potentially play a role in, you know, building, building that magic um, moving forward and, and uh, creating the world that I, I hope that will be available, you know, for her, for the sector. Same. I, I think that, you know, there, there'll be hopefully more opportunities to explore, you know, all, all these, you know, emerging, uh, you know, technologies uh, as well. And I, my hope for the sector is that uh, collectively, you know, all the things around like, you know, knowledge sharing, capacity building, that it gets more and more robust and that, you know, it free information flows, you know, between organizations and that you know, we can all, you know, lift together into that better future. Thanks so much, Jason, for sharing your time and your insights. I've learned a lot. Enjoy interactions and there's a, a little bit of magic and delight in, in uh, some of our conversation today. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Cause and Purpose. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as we did. For our next episode, we'll be diving back into startup world one more time this year. And we have a great one in store for you. The founder and CEO of MySpeech, Nathan Malapetti. MySpeech is a platform dedicated to helping people who stutter connect with affordable speech therapists and a supportive community. Nathan and the folks who use MySpeech are just some of the 70 million people around the world who stutter, including the President of the United States, Joe Biden. We'll talk about stuttering and some of its underlying causes. We'll unpack some of the reasons why there are so few resources available to this unique community and explore the ups and downs of his entrepreneurial journey. At 24, Nathan is one of the youngest founders we've had on the show, and he's actively pursuing a medical degree at Harvard alongside his work as CEO of MySpeech. Hope you can join us. Until next time, Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Jason, and our entire team, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to speaking with you again soon.